You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Now, do you want to do that? Are you ready to do that? I'm making you a deal. Do you want this deal? I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So this is 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. Sometimes we do classics, sometimes we do new movies, we do little movies, we do big movies. This week we're doing a big, big movie, a movie that a lot of us have loved for a long, long time. What are we doing this week, Mike? 1987's Untouchables, directed by Brian De Palma. Yes, and with the screenplay by... David Mamet. David Mamet, our our hero, one of our heroes of our, as, as a writer, which is why we love it so much. So in part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film. Mike, what's yours? This movie's an instant classic. When I think about it now, and you think about like period drama, there's a lot of ways that this could have gone wrong because part of the appeal of the movie is the suits the guys wear, all like the streets lined with all the old cars. Um, this is one incidentally one of my dad's favorite movies and as a kid I remember seeing all the cars lined up on the screen and it was one of the first moments I ever thought to myself I wonder how they arranged that like I it was one of the first times that I ever thought well cars don't look like that so how'd they get all those cars there at the same time and I it was an insight into movie production but in any case it's a big budget movie with a bunch of celebrities that you wouldn't think of as being in the same movie right like it on paper if I told you that Sean Connery was going to star uh, opposite Robert De Niro. I, I wouldn't be a hundred percent sure about that movie. I'd be yeah. like, you know, uh, are they making Highlander four? You know, with, <laughs> uh, with Robert De Niro. But this movie just works. Uh, the script works. It's tense all the way through. All of the performances sparkle. Every single performance is quite strong. From his from his wife to the whole team to, of course, Robert De Niro uh, as Al Capone. It's amazing. And not necessarily in ways that that you would expect. I mean, you expect explosions, you expect gunshots, but this is an incredibly poignant movie. And it just end up being a drama about Kevin Costner trying to do everything up to the law and, yeah. and, and how you have to go beyond it. So what are you prepared to do? What are you prepared just, to do? And and upon despite or beyond the immortality of that scene, not despite it. Every single human moment works, even, you know, up until the guy shot in the elevator when he throws the guy off the roof, you know, uh, what what it's like to deal with that during the day and then go home at night, you know, to your wife and kid. Yeah, it's uh, they made a really poignant, interesting human period drama 
with a star-studded cast and a special effects budget. And that's just not something you see every day. Yeah, it's not. And I love the fact that it's not a super unbelievable budget. It's like, it's a nice, like, you know, and people have written about this, that we're living in a time now where you can make really small independent films or you can make a superhero movie for, you know, $300 million. But like the mid-level you know, respectable budget movies are kind of going away because people are putting more money into TV and to series like that. So that it was, it was a lot of, um, there was a lot of nostalgia for me watching it again, because I remember when it first came out, seeing it in the movies and thinking it was really, really terrific. Although of course he didn't bat a thousand because Brian De Palma's next movie was, uh, was it Scarface? Nope. Was it Bonfire of the Vanities? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yikes. If you want to, if you want to hear about that, listen to our episode on the devil's candy. But um, the thing I love about this movie is that it's, it strikes me as very much in spirit, like a Shakespearean history play. And I know you've read all the history plays like I have, we love them very much. So I, I did a little research on this. And what's funny about it is that, you know, um, Elliot Ness didn't really become famous until after he died when Robert Stack played him on the, on the TV show. Right. He, I didn't know all this. So Elliot Ness, you know, he helps bring down Capone. He's, he's 57 years old. He writes the book, the untouchables it's in, it's in proofs. Like it, it's almost about to come out and he has a heart attack and he dies. So the book still comes out in 57. He was 54 years old. It wasn't a big deal when he died though. When Elliot Ness died, I thought it would be, the, it's not, it was not a huge media event. Right. In 1959, the TV show comes out with Robert Stack and that's out for four years. And, and so and then enough people knew about that, including Brian De Palma, you know, and David Mamet to kind of make this movie. So I love it because it's got the same, it strikes me as it's got the same spirit as a Shakespearean history play. Now, as you know, Shakespeare would take real people from history, like um, Julius Caesar or Henry V or Richard III, and, and not presume to tell you what happened, but to use those stories as, as vehicles, as means to explore other things, right? So Henry V is a, is a great movie about leadership, a great play about leadership, right? And Richard III is about villainy and, and Caesar's about politics. And I think what's cool is that, that Mamet took a lot of stuff that there really was a guy named Al Capone, obviously, there really was, you know, an Elliot Ness, and didn't try to make it quote unquote realistic. Like the cars are real and, and, the, and the suits are real and, and the look is real, but he, he takes liberties with certain things. Like for example, the Canada thing never happened. I found that out. Um, the thing in the train station never happened. That's supposed to be Battleship Potankin anyway. Um, you know, Elliot Ness did not throw Frank Needy off the roof. He died, I think he killed himself actually, like years after the events. Um, the baseball bat scene, you know, I thought to myself, well, that couldn't have happened. There's no way it did happen. And he did kill a guy with a baseball bat, but the difference is he did it with three guys. <laughs> three guys he found out were traitors. So David Mavitt in his restraints is like, you know what? One guy's perfect. Let him do the baseball speech at one guy. So I, I really like that, that, that the film, it doesn't attempt, because I think when sometimes directors try to do that, they can get the history right, but it doesn't make good drama. And I thought the perfect example of that was Lincoln, was Spielberg's movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, right? You, when you heard Daniel Day-Lewis was going to play Lincoln, what was your reaction? I thought it would be, there would be blood, but better. Yeah. I'm like, well, oh my, like, not only does he look like him, which, you know, like, you know, not that that's supposed to be the number one kind of thing, but I, I'm like, that's going to be great. And it's really, really great about passing, you know, the, the civil war amendments and Tommy Lee Jones is great, but it kind of, it kind of lacks what say a man for all seasons has, which, you know, how realistic are those conversations between Sir Thomas More and Harry Deeth? Who cares? Right. But it's a, that's a great play about, um, like, you know, um, martyrdom or standing up for your beliefs and about, the, you know, the, the conflict between friends when one of them gets politically powerful. So I think that um, to keep, you know, talking about this is I think The Untouchables does a great job of telling a story about a guy who's trying to do the right thing. He doesn't really know how to do it. 
Um, he has this scene with the umbrellas. He needs help. He meets Malone. And it does that with, with kind of a quasi backdrop. We know what Chicago is. We know what Prohibition was. And it has the spirit of those, those history plays that Shakespeare wrote so much. His first scenes in the office, getting his team together yeah. like in the empty office, that's such a mammoth thing yeah. of how painfully awkward and quiet it is. So you can hear all the closets open and close yeah. and all the drawers. Um, that scene has always stuck in my mind. Yeah. And when he pins up like his first headline, which is a mockery of him. And, he, and you know, you know, as the movie goes on, that bulletin board's going to get filled up. And the last one will be when they get Capone. But I just I just like I, I give De Palma and Mamet a lot of credit for not trying to tell the story of Prohibition and not trying to tell the story of actually what happened, because I don't care what's in the book. I don't care how the accountants got him on income tax evasion. But they do make a nice, tense little courtroom drama yeah. out of the end. And yeah. so what what I like about it is ringing every second of drama that could possibly be had, but then throwing away anything that's extraneous. Yeah, because again, like the original audience of Shakespeare's plays, or actually the audience is now, we all know what's going to happen to Caesar, even though he doesn't in the play, we know what's going to happen to, to you know Henry V. What's great is that um, we know that, Al, everyone knows when they watch this, we know that Al Capone's going to go to jail for tax fraud or income tax evasion. But in the movie, it's a gag. When, when the, the guy, the account keeps going, look at this, look at this. And they're like, really, we're going to get them an income tax evasion. Now, the, you know, they're not in on the joke that we are because they don't obviously don't have the hindsight that we do. But it's how charming and scary yeah. De Niro makes him too at, at yeah. the same time. He's, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but he's the kind of villain where you're never sure what he's going to do. And I think that that's dramatized beautifully. Yeah. All right. Well, in part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, we talk about our key scenes. Dan, I think yours is before mine. Yeah, so mine is when they go to Canada. And of course, you want to pick the part where Sean Connery kills the dead guy, which is just a great, great moment. I mean, never done in a movie. Like you actually kill somebody who's already dead. That's a great moment. And he's so charming in the movie. But my moment is when the four of them, you have, you know, you have Ness, Malone, Stone, and Terry on the horses. And they all know how to ride horses all of a sudden, but we'll give them a pass on that. And even the account knows how to ride a horse. Even Elliot Ness knows how to ride a horse and ride really quickly, you know, really quickly down a hill. I think that that's funny because it reminded me in a funny way of a, a film we did a couple of weeks ago. It reminded me of The Seven Samurai, where you have this team assembled and, and they, go, they go to, you know, fight evil and complete this mission. And it's funny how... I just think it's great how in movies we respond. We love that idea so well that you're going to have the mixed bag of people going on this mission, whether it's Seven Samurai, whether it's Ocean's Eleven, whether it's this. You have like Ness is like the square. You know, you have Malone, who's like Yoda. He's like the teacher, the whole, the whole movie, right? You have um, Andy Garcia Stone is like the skilled guy. He's like the super marksman. And then you have Terry, who's the, like the goofy mascot, like that, you know, the, the cool kid that gets to sit at the cool lunch table and they all, they're all together and it, it shouldn't work, but it does in this movie because the movie, I think, carries you along. I think one thing that this movie does really interestingly for all the action scenes it has is that morally, the question is, should we even be using force at all? Right. It's very rare for the, in the seven samurai, nobody ever says, Hey, should we kill the bad guys? Or what do you, what do you think here? You know? And, but that's, that's really the whole drama of the untouchables is Elliot Ness growing accustomed to violence. Whereas of course the American audience is already accustomed to violence. Yeah. They knew what they were going to get from the time that they sat down. And so um, not disappointing. My favorite scene has to be the scene of uh, trying to protect the accountant 
uh, in the train station. Yeah. The, the guys are yeah. the, the bookkeeper. Cause, cause the guys are trying to kill him. And of course that's the linchpin to the whole courtroom drama. So he, he is the human MacGuffin of the yeah. entire movie, but the extra MacGuffin is the baby falling down the stairs uh, in the carriage, like uh, Eisenstein's battleship Potemkin sure. on the, yep. um, on the steps. And that's just a beautifully classic scene. I think Andy Garcia is at his most charming. Um, it's 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 the kind of action scene that you might expect from Mamet, which is yeah. complicated and complex and human. But somehow, and we, we've talked about this too, actually in another Robert De Niro movie, they're like, can you imagine trying to film that shootout, right? It's a very simple shootout. It's like two guys, everybody's trying to clear out of the way. Right. You've got one hallway, but if I tried to film it, even with three cameras and two yeah. and two experts who knew what they were doing, I'm not sure that I could guide an audience through that scene so that everybody knows spatially where everybody else is placed. That to me is just amazing. That's amazing yeah. filmmaking. It just occurred to me, Mike, it's so funny because I was thinking like, when did you, we talk about that? We talked about that when we did our episode on heat. And remember, we said, you can give us all the money in the world and unlimited, whatever you want. You can give us, you know, all the teamsters, give us all the great special effects guys. Could you do a thing like that middle bank robbery thing in heat? We said, now here it's, it's, it's just as impressive. Although there's like maybe five or six people in it. Now the beauty, yeah, the beauty of it to your point is I think the way that movies are made now is you respect a historical personage and you want to make a movie about them, but Mamet and De Palma are better because they respect the audience. Yeah. They do. They do. And that's why I think when you see when, you know, I watched it with somebody who had never seen it before. So I'm, of course, when, when, they, when they get to the train station, I'm all giddy because I'm like, here's the here it is. Here's the big scene. And you know what you forget? You forget another thing to their credit that they're so patient in that scene. Because again, a lesser director would have made a cool shootout thing, maybe in a minute. That scene must go on for it's got to be nine or 10 minutes. And you that's what I'm you got that's him? such a good line yeah take them take them but they respect the audience they like don't worry this is coming because it, you know you can imagine you can imagine at some point the palm in the editing room saying i don't know she like how much is she going to fuss with this baby how hard is she going to try to get the baby up these steps i mean it, it goes on longer it goes on like just a little too long the way that like the jokes do in curb your enthusiasm or you know it's like they're just a little too awkward and that's of course the, the fun of it and that's i think what happens something like that happens here well the movie's like that strategically right they're first yeah. bust is a dud right. and then the second is you know two minutes of action in canada and then people start dying and they yeah. die until the movie's over yeah and, and it's not in a way that you're really ready for for a viewer right as an as an as an american audience viewer what you want is the one big scene and it just keeps rolling Okay, so welcome back in part three. We like to talk about the ending, the title, or the key takeaways. Dan, what's your key takeaway? My key takeaway is I mentioned before how much I enjoy the relationship between Sean Connery and Kevin Cosner. I mean, that's that's I think the core of the movie. I think when he makes him do the blood oath in the church is great. I mean, I, I we we didn't talk about when Sean Connery gets killed. That's such a great great scene. Um, he's so charming in the movie, and I think what's great about the movie is that you know after Sean Connery dies. Elliot Ness gets to, he gets to have his cake and eat it too. He gets to win both ways. As a square G, as, as the head of the untouchables, he gets Capone convicted. He doesn't kill, go up and kill him. He has the, he tries to have the fight with him in the hotel and, and then Sean Connery pulls him back, but he wins that way. But he also wins as an action hero when he throws the guy off the roof. And then he even gets to say the action hero throwaway line, like he's in the car. 
Yeah. So it's kind of cool. That like, like Elliot Ness gets to win both ways. I think that the movie has the perfect inflection point, which is when Sean Connery dies, as you said, and sort of the, the, the torch is passed, right? It, uh, Sean Connery as Malone is the Mercutio of this movie. <laughs> and you is. can't, you yeah. can't bring it to a climax while he's still just out there being Sean Connery all the time. Right. So there's, there's a way in which structurally he's got to die for the script to continue. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's also, that's a great point about Mercutio. That's a great point. It's also why he's got to, um, why Kevin Costner has to give his keychain to Andy Garcia. And he says he would have wanted a cop to have it. Like that's a really, like they earn that moment. Like that could be schmaltzy, but when he gives it to him, you know, you don't break down and cry, but you're kind of like, ah, oh, that's like a, that's like a great little moment. One good question for me is what Kevin Costner is doing. I know he's on some Amazon series. He's, he's just, um, you were talking about historical adaptations. And to me, Kevin Costner is the guy you think of from the mid eighties to like the late nineties. If you don't know what a historical personage looks like it's like what's Wyatt Earp look like I don't know Kevin yeah. Costner yeah you know pr- probably not but uh you know close enough yeah and I think that he gets by much the same way that Elliot Ness gets by by not being very good at anything Kevin Costner is exactly who I want at the center of a cast featuring Andy Garcia and Robert De Niro and Sean Connery because what's he going to do upstage them <laughs> I, th- I think not you know he's he's a straight man not just to the group but in some ways to that to that all-star cast and he's convincing, but non-threatening in a way that I think made him perfect for those kinds of movies, but I don't think is, is entirely sustainable to a career. Yeah. That's a great point because when you watch this, you think to yourself, wow, this is like, he had made no way out the bodyguard, this dances with wolves, Wyatt Earp. And then, okay. Then he, then we got, we got a uh, Waterworld, We got the postman, Yikes. you know, but, but you know, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman had Ishtar. I mean, we can go through. I mean, you know, Chris Christopherson was in Heaven's Gate. Michael Salmino. I mean, the, the, you know, Bonfire of the Vanities we mentioned in this very episode. So the, the the story of Hollywood is filled with those kind of stories. It's just interesting how how quickly he fell off the map. And you're right. Like, he, he's a very non-threatening leading man. But, you know, the, the, that kind of thing could be good for 40 movies. Yeah, it's a shame. But at the same time, Waterworld was bad. Waterworld was bad in a way that Heaven's Gate will never be bad. All right. No argument there. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, please check us out at 15MINFilm. You can also follow us now on Letterboxd. Letterboxd. So please follow us on Letterboxd. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And again, we take requests. We've done maybe five or six requests so far this season. Keep them coming. We'll watch it. You tell us what to watch. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.